You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Well, with that, if there are things, let me know. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, let's jump in there. I don't need it. And we're at this point here in, in Paul's letter, as I've stated before, in the outline of, of what he's writing. The first three chapters really are the how of how we get to where we are as believers, as followers of Christ, as the family of God, right? So this is where we're talking about salvation, redemption. We're part of God's family. We're talking about adoption language. We're talking about how it is that we're brought in, um, how uh, the church becomes an expression of Jesus's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're the vehicle through what that looks like, for what that looks like on earth. People are looking at Christians and the church as the fulfillment of what God promised through Jesus, right? Like we're the vehicle that God uses. And so Paul uses those first three chapters to, uh, to discuss that. And now we come to chapter four, and this is the fun, exciting part where in, in my mind, it's split into how we got here and then what we're supposed to do, right? And oftentimes that's the big question that we've talked about before is like, what does it look like to actually be a follower of Christ? What are the things that we're supposed to measure ourselves against and say, am I doing what it is that God has laid out for us as, as a part of his family to do? Am I doing those things? And so um, the big ideas that we're going to see as we move through chapters four, five, and six are how our behavior as followers of Christ influences things like unity. Like that's, that's a major theme of Paul's writing all throughout his letters, but here in, in Ephesians, it's, it's a really big theme. So unity, it's going to be about how our behavior as Christians uh, affects our separation from sinners and what that's supposed to look like, which is a big idea of like, well, if we're supposed to be witnessing to the world and testifying to Jesus, how are we supposed to separate ourselves from sinners? Like what's the dividing line? Paul's going to talk about that. Right? He's going to talk about how our behavior is, is dictates to us how we deal with conflict, how we deal with our marriage relationships, how we deal with our parent-child relationships, work relationships. All of these things are going to be specifics that Paul says, you as the body of Christ, this is what it should look like. These are the principles and this is the behavior that, that should reflect the fact that you're a part of God's family, right? So... Um, and, and unity becomes this constant thread that goes through all of these different issues and it weaves its way in all of Paul's instruction. And so um, that idea and that concept right now for me, there's a couple things that are causing me, I, I use the word turmoil, but only, only from the perspective of, man, I'm trying to figure it out. This issue of unity, there's two issues that I think have come up in the last several years. I don't know how to put a number on it, maybe five where you start hearing from other ministries, other pastors, other churches within the faith, you start seeing trends, right? And sometimes there's really unhealthy trends, but then there's other trends that are healthy. And you start, start realizing God seems to be doing something within the church as a whole. And the word unity is something that is popping up in diverse congregations of people, right? That within, within specific groups of Christians. So whether it be the Southern Baptist Convention or whether it be 
um, you know, the Presbyterians or whether it be uh, the independent churches on the West Coast or whatnot, the, there's this idea of unity is coming up more and more and more. And there's a lot of discussion being uh, that's taking place amongst ministry leaders to say, how is it that we present ourselves as the body of Christ unified rather than segregated based on our own little camps, right? Based on our own little understandings or twists, interpretations of scripture. And so that theme is, is coming up in a big way. So I think it's, it's appropriate that, that it's part of Paul's writing for us and what we're studying right now. The other part is something that's been developing for years. And that's a, rededica- that's a rededication to um, communion, to the table of fellowship with the Lord. That's becoming something that um, in a lot of churches that it was a part of the tradition, but not something that was practiced regularly. That's becoming a huge thing, actually seeing Christ honored in that way um, more and more. And so those are two big trends that I think are, are taking place within the church as a whole. And so, um, so as I consider those things, the idea of unity is troubling me from the perspective of how do we promote unity? How do we develop unity, especially when it's with people that while we have Christ in common, almost nothing else is in common. That's a big, that's a big question. Paul deals with a lot of that here. Now, chapter four, here's how we jump into this whole section about behavior and what it looks like to be and to act like a part of the body of Christ. Verse one says, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Stop right there. Just the first verse. It's, it's neat when you start breaking down language and you hear, again, you guys know that when something gets translated from the original language, the interpreters are just trying to do their best to get the idea across. And, And there's, there's word for word translations, but oftentimes that's clunky because words don't always translate directly language to language. So a lot of times the biblical scholars who interpret or um, translate rather uh, the, the Greek that this was written in into English, it's like they're trying to get the whole idea across, even if the words maybe don't line up word for word. And quite frankly, if you go back and try and read Greek or even worse, um, Hebrew in the Old Testament, the sentence structure is different, grammar's different. It's challenging to read those languages and get the flow that we're used to in the English language. But that said, when Paul says that he's a prisoner, this is in one sense exactly how it sounds. He is bound, he is a captive, but this specific word for prisoner gives the indication that the person that is being bound is bound as if with a spell. And I know that sounds maybe a little bit cryptic or a little bit creepy, but the indication here is that you're bound, not physically with chains, but you're bound by something spiritual. That's what Paul is saying, is that I am a prisoner for the Lord. See, he qualifies it. If he just used that word and said that he was a prisoner of something spiritual, there's room to interpret what that means and say, well, what spirit is holding you captive, Paul? He clarifies that and says, I'm a prisoner, I'm a captive to the Lord. The Lord's my master. I'm his, and this is the word that gets used all throughout the New Testament with qualification, but bond slave, right? That relationship of saying, he's my owner, right? Now that's offensive to our Western ears because of the history that that the United States of America has with uh, African-American slavery, right? Where we were selling people like chattel and it was, it was, it's a black mark on our history. This was a part of that culture that was, in a way that was healthy and actually beneficial to those members of that society who were 
the slave, the bond slave. They were willingly entering into this relationship to where they had this master that cared for them. They were brought into that household. They were part of that family. This was not like a slave chained to a tree, you know, being forced to do hard manual labor. This was someone who was in this relationship and yet subservient to their master, right? And so it was much more employee-employer relationship, benevolent dictatorship, whatever you want to call it. But this is the kind of binding that Paul finds himself under. He's a prisoner for the Lord. And so what that means is the Lord says, he does. That's a dynamic that I wish I had more of. To go, here's the conviction of the Lord. Here's God's word. I don't have a choice but to do what he says. And far too often when confronted with that choice, here's what God says. I turn and I leave the relationship and I go the opposite direction of what he says to do. And that's dangerous, especially if we want to be pursuing holiness. The way to do that is to be obedient to what God says. Not only does Paul say and declare that he is a prisoner for the Lord, he's spiritually bound to God as his master. Then he uses the word urge. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The word urge is, is a beautiful word that means to call to one side, right? So if I'm a parent and my little kiddo's running over there and they're kind of far out of my reach and I say, hey, come here, come to my side, come walk with me. You can imagine in your mind's eye the outstretched hand of like, come on, let's go Johnny, Susie, whoever they are and come over here and come with me, right? That's the idea of what Paul's saying when he urges the church, okay? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. It echoes Paul's words that he used for the Corinthians as well. Paul, what did he say? He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, right? It's the same concept. Here, watch me, come with me, come alongside with me, be right here by my side, and let's go together right? It makes complete sense when you consider that in light of Christ's great commission to us to say, go therefore and make disciples. This is what discipleship is. It's not necessarily a class. It's not necessarily a book. Those things can be a part of it. But discipleship at its core is taking someone and saying, you're far away from the things of God. You're far away from the Lord as your master. Here, come walk with me come to my side and let's go together. And, and that, that imagery I think is so ripe right now for us, especially when we talk about unity. The concept that even if we're in relationship with someone who appears to be or is in practice far away from the Lord, our desire should be to draw them close. Now, I'll never forget in when, when um, Carly believed upon Jesus for her salvation, like when she became a Christian, she was, she was a little bit older. She was 20 something. And she was coming out of relationships and friendships with people who were not believers and didn't want to be. They didn't have a desire to join us, to go to church, no matter how many times we invited them. And so I remember at one point giving her the advice of be friends with these people. Don't lose those friendships, but be friends on your terms, not theirs. Oftentimes discipleship has to take that form. We need to have relationships with unbelievers. How else do we share the word? But it needs to be on our terms, 
not theirs, right? Yeah, come on, come come to the tailgate and let's drink a bunch. And yeah, you're a Christian, that's fine, but maybe you can talk about Jesus or maybe we'll let you pray for the meal or whatever, right? That's their terms versus, hey, I wanna be friends with you. Let's just sit down together and dialogue and let's talk about these things. Let me share with you what my faith is, right? And, and that's, where that, that's where that dynamic, it takes time, it takes investment, and at the heart of it, you truly have to love someone to want to spend and invest that time with them. If you don't truly love someone, if you don't really care about their eternal fate, their soul, then it becomes a whole lot easier just to go, yeah, we're different, I'm choosing my path, they're choosing theirs, okay, that's up to God to decide, versus my desire is to see them brought close. And this is what Paul says, I urge you, I urge you, I'm calling you to my side, imitate me as I imitate Christ, let me disciple you, let me show you what it means to, to be a follower of Christ. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This idea of walking means to behave, and this sets the table for the rest of what he says in the letter this word walk, to walk in a manner. And it means to behave in a specified manner, a, a manner that is befitting appropriate behavior. This is what Paul lays out for the rest of his letter. He's saying, I'm going to call you to my side. Let's walk with Christ as our master. God, the Lord is our master. Let's walk with him and let's do it in a way that is appropriate for the way in which we were called, meaning that our conduct, our behavior is judged to be appropriate based on the fact that God has called us and that calling is an official summons. When we talk about the calling of God, a lot of times we're asking that question in the sense of, God, what's my calling as a Christian? Like, what? how do you want me to serve in the church? What's my vocation? How does that play into me making disciples, right? We think of calling in that sense. Calling in the biblical sense that it's used here is quite honestly an official summons where as if a judge was saying, you now approach the bench, right? Like in a courtroom drama where the judge says, hey, approach the bench. I want to have a discussion with you, right? It's official. You can't say no. If you do, you're held in contempt of court. The judge just made his decision, right? And, and, and so, so when God calls us, it's this official thing that he's saying, come to me, right? And when you come to me, there's appropriate behavior that goes with that calling, right? So when, God, when the judge calls us in court and we approach the bench, we don't get to just approach in any willy-nilly fashion that we want. We don't get to go jump up next to him and sit on top of the, the thing and grab his gavel and go, can I pound this a couple times, right? Like that's, we're not allowed to do that. There's an official way that that's, that business is conducted. The same thing is true with God. Now, what's funny about this is I think a lot of us have, have encountered um, the idea that, that we're supposed to come to God as we are, right? Just as we are, just as you are. What's the hymn, right? Just as you are, come, all that kind of thing. Well, that's true in the sense of when you come for salvation, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to the Lord. You come to the Lord and he cleans you up. But now that he's your master, there are now expectations of what that relationship looks like, right? That's, that's the thing. Now as sons and daughters adopted into God's family, there are things that, that the, the authors of scripture will tell us, this is what it looks like to be a part of that family. This is how we're supposed to behave, right? So because of this official summons, because Paul is saying that the Lord is the master, he's bound to him, 
he's saying, come alongside with me. Let's walk together in a way that is befitting the calling, this official summons that the Lord has given to us. And then I want you to notice the adjectives. I've been teaching English this year. I'm co-teaching English with another teacher, outstanding teacher. And so now I'm being reintroduced to all the parts of speech, nouns, verbs, adjectives, articles, like sentence structure. And she asked me a question the other day in the middle of class and I was just totally caught off guard. I was just like, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. You know, like it was some grammar thing and I didn't know what it was supposed to be. But regardless, adjectives, descriptive words. Here's what Paul uses. Take note of these things. He's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here's how we're supposed to walk. This is the description of how we're supposed to actually be servants called by God into service. Notice the words. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here it is. Verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's, that's the calling. That's what we've been called to. That's the way we're supposed to act and behave when we've been called by God. These are the descriptive words, humble, gentle, patient, enduring something unpleasant, right? Like this is the whole thing, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with something means enduring something. Right. And we're supposed to. And and when you bear something, the whole concept is that the thing that you're putting up with is probably unpleasant in nature. Right. So here's the idea. Unity. It's shot through this whole section of scripture. It's woven into it. So Paul's saying, in essence, this unity that you have to fight for, that you've been called to by God in how you walk. Right. The appropriate response is to bear with it, which means that unity is not always going to be comfortable or pleasant. It might be something that quite frankly rubs us the wrong way. And yet we're called to bear with it with love. That's the thing. Okay. So he says, he says in verses two and three, do this, walk in this way with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, note that word eager. I'm actually excited about this eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The idea of maintaining it means that at one point there was this unity. At some point in our relationship with God and with his people, there's unity and we're to maintain that unity. So a couple of things about that. As soon as I hear adjectives, descriptive words about the Christian life, where it's described as humble, gentle, patient, enduring things with love, all those kinds of things. My mind, and me personally, my mind immediately goes to Jesus in the temple making a whip of cords. Here's why. Because that didn't seem to be gentle. That didn't seem to be patient or humble in the sense of Jesus had to drive out the money changers from the temple to fulfill what the scripture says, right? My house is going to be a house of prayer, not a place of commerce, not a place to exchange money. And so Jesus takes the the whip of cords and he drives them out of the temple. I'm like, God, isn't that the exception? If I feel justified in driving someone's opinion out that I find to be offensive against the Lord, do I have to be humble and gentle then? Or can I just go for it like Jesus did? Well, here's the thing. Jesus could do whatever he wants. I can't. 
That's the bottom. That's the bottom line. Because the reality is, if you remember that story of Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple, Jesus was in complete control. When I get angry, I'm not in control of anything. I'm not in control of my emotions. Not in control of my words. Barely in control of my actions. Jesus was in complete control. So much so, he drove the money changers out. Then what did he do? He took the doves that were in their case and he set them aside. Well, the indication is, is that he had complete control over what he was doing. So while being forceful might not seem humble, there was a meekness in the way Jesus did it. Power under control, right? Jesus can do whatever he wants. I have to look at the scripture and what I'm told to be humble, patient, gentle, maintain that unity, strive for it, fight for it, or, or, or bear with the things that might rub me the wrong way, but bear with one another in love and be, and here's what he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this next section as Paul begins in verse four, as he starts talking about unity, he describes it in such a way where I think it's impossible to move past or explain away his expectation, okay? And it presents some very big challenges for us. It presents some even theological challenges for us in the scope of Christian faith today. Listen to how Paul describes this unity. That, I'll I'll say, he says we're supposed to be eager to maintain. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's the predominant word that he uses? One. One. It's, there's no other way to interpret it. There's no fancy language translation that needs to be done on that. It's as simple as can be, singular. One. He's defining our faith and the unity of that faith by saying there's one body. When we talk about body, it's a reference to the church. There's one church. There's one Jesus's body. He's the head, we're the limbs, we're the parts, all those kinds of things. But we're one body, one spirit, which defines the Holy Spirit, right? There's just, there's just one. There's, and, and the theological implication is, is that you can't interpret this one spirit differently than someone else does. That's a theological problem. Because within the Christian faith, people interpret the working and nature of the Holy Spirit differently. He goes on and says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's great. We could all agree on that. The hope is the blessed appearance of Jesus, as Jude says, right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ding, ding, ding. A lot of different churches, a lot of different expressions of the faith believe in baptism to be different things. There are some who believe that salvation occurs at baptism, that even though you make, might make a profession of faith with your mouth, you're not actually saved until you're baptized. Why do they believe that? Because Jesus says that you receive salvation through the spirit and water. And so there are those who believe that salvation comes at baptism. There are some that believe baptism is only authentic if you're fully immersed in the water. And then there's others who believe, well, actually, it doesn't matter if you're fully immersed or you're sprinkled or doused or whatever the case might be, right? It doesn't matter. And in fact, there's early church writings. There's a document called the Didache, which is one of the earliest, uh, like, Christian, like, 
commentaries, if you will. It's a, it's, a, it's a commentary on the practices of the early church, how they did services, and it speaks directly to baptism. It says the preferred mode is in living water. What that means is like running water, like a stream or a river. That's the preferred method. They, but, but then it goes on to say, but if that's not available, sprinkling's just as good, right? But do it three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So there's all these instructions that the church has, has received and practiced for years, and yet there's not just one baptism anymore from the perspective of the different theological beliefs that exist within the church. So how, how, do, we, how do we move forward, right? And, and I'll be honest, this is the, the thing for me right now that I, that I struggle with in my own personal study and prayer time. Like, this is the thing that, that I'm like asking the Lord, God, yeah, like we're supposed to, as an example to the world, love each other as people who co- confess Jesus as our savior. And yet most of the time when I go online and listen to people from different traditions or people who have different expressions of their faith, all I want to do is debate with them and argue and tell them why they're wrong. Like, no, no, no. See, it's the way I think it should be, right? And that's what I want to do rather than somehow find and embrace and bear with the rubbing up against and the uncomfortable nature of unity. But I need to embrace those brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus. Now, that's not to say, that's not to say that we aren't to be discerning, right? There's a difference between embracing unity of those who are in the faith and, and being able to say what you're describing to me is not the same faith. It's not the same Jesus. It's not the same Lord. And of course, to someone who's untrained in that, they would say, well, how can you have different Jesus as well? There are people who would claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ who don't believe in a Trinitarian expression of God. They believe that God is either God the Father or God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. They don't believe that he's all three persons at the same time. Well, that, that expression of theology, that doctrine of the Trinitarian nature of God, that he's three in one, comes from the earliest days of the church. It's never expressed explicitly. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you see the expression of it all the way from Genesis chapter one. Let us make mankind in our image, right? So the, that Trinitarian, that, that, that disagreement on the Trinitarian nature of God puts us at odds. There's a point there where you can't have unity because if Jesus in his sacrifice at that moment is not God, or if God is not God at the moment that Jesus has sacrificed, there's no relationship allowable for atonement. God has to be God the Father appeased wrath poured out at the same time that Jesus is God willingly giving up his, his life as a sacrifice under the power and strength of God, the Holy spirit. There has to be the interaction of the three in one nature of God. If there's not, there's not agreement. So, so all that to say what Paul is calling for here, it, it, I get frustrated when I hear people say, no, the Bible's easy to understand. No, Christianity, it's really simple. You just believe in Jesus and the rest is gravy, man. It's just like, I, I'm getting to a point where I'm like, can't do it. Cannot accept that. And th- those are fighting words for me. Like, sorry, it's not that simple. Salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, 
that is simple in nature in terms of the transaction that takes place. But, but, but the rest of it, this figuring out, this working out of what it means to follow Christ and what it looks like, not simple. It's hard. Jesus himself would tell his own followers, his disciples, and those that were listening to what he said. He said, the, the way is hard. He said, the way to heaven is what? It's narrow. And the way to hell is easy. It's wide open, right? So, so for anybody to get the idea that being a Christian or following Jesus is a cakewalk, that it's somehow this easy thing, that it's real simple, just believe and then just do your best and, and God, will, God will take care of the rest. That's not what scripture presents to us. In fact, Paul's words here would challenge that entire idea. And yet he calls us again in verse two to bear with one another in love, to, to, to take the weight of that uncomfortable thing and that's why, that's why we need to be okay walking into conversations that are challenging. We have to embrace the, the differences that we have and be willing to discuss, go to the word, look at what God says, and, and be able to come to some form of agreement. Now, the big question is, here is, how is it that we're supposed to do that? Thankfully, as, as is the case often, I believe God gives us the answer to that in the scripture as well. The problem is presented, but the answer's there as well. So, so continue on with me in verse seven. And I think this is, this is what we have to lean on heavily to be able to trust that what God has called us to, he also enables us to do. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, quoting the Psalms, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Mankind, personhood is the idea. Verse nine, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul's using this language just to, just to indicate and describe to the listener that what we're talking about is Jesus, God, who came to the earth, the lower regions, and then also ascended at his appointed time when he returned to the Father. But verse seven, I think, is the key for us here. How are we supposed to have unity? How are we supposed to overcome the differences? How are we supposed to maintain this bond of peace in the spirit, right? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I believe the answer is that God gives us grace so that Jesus can fill us with the things that we need to be united, right? The tools that we need, the understanding, the compassion, the humility, the gentleness, the patience, the grace. I think, I think God gives us grace to be able to receive those things from Jesus. And again, I'll return back to this idea. What are we called to? What is this divine command, this, this holy calling that God has called us to in Christ as Christians? What's the ultimate end of it? It's to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, as we learned several weeks ago. And in the practical sense, it's to be molded into the image of Jesus. That's the concept of being a Christian. It, it, it's to say, I am, being, I am being formed around the image of Jesus so much so that at a certain point, they're not seeing me, they're seeing Jesus. 
And I think this is what God's grace enables us to do. So let me try and say it in a different way. That as grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, I think that means that each of us has God's good will given to us. That's the idea of grace, God's good will given to us in accordance with Jesus's gift to us. Meaning there's room within us for what God wants to do, not through us, but through Jesus because of his grace. God's grace to us opens up this space that Jesus then gets to fill and that God will then use to make these connections, to be one in ways that if it's just us and our thoughts and our emotions and our preferences, we're going to create division. We're going to say, no, I don't like that. I don't like the way you guys worship. I don't like that you're waving flags. I don't know why you're marching around the sanctuary right now, but I'm not into that. I don't want that. And you people, I don't like how you chant and say the same prayers over and over and over and over again. That bugs me, right? Like we have, we can make lists and just go, I don't like the guy wearing the funny hat. I don't see what the point of that is. Okay. Right. I don't like your translation. It says thee, thou, this, and thus. And I don't understand what you're saying. Can't you just say it in the English? Right. And there's others who go, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Right. King James wasn't around when Paul was there. Okay, all right, so sounds good. We're on the same page. So, so the point is, is that on our own, with our flesh intact, with us having our hearts and minds filled with our thoughts and feelings, we're not gonna be able to have unity. But by God's grace, he opens up this space in us that can be filled with the gifts that Jesus wants to give us. What is it that Jesus left us? What did he say that was gonna happen that why he had to leave? What is the great gift that he's given to us? the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is that thing that allows us to be patient, to be kind, to truly love in a selfless way. That's that's how we get to unity. There's no other way to do it but through love. And that's what Paul says at the very beginning of the thing, right? Bearing with one another in love. Not bearing with one another and keeping a list, right? or bearing with one another and then going home and complaining about it. Sign me up. That's where I'm at. Ask Carly. I'll bear with everybody until I get home. Then I'm going to really let them know what's up. Okay? No. Bearing with one another in love. And love is genuine love. Genuine, agape, fellowship. I care about these people. Love. So each one of us, somewhere within the gifting that we've been given by Jesus, which is some form or expression of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to be unified with each other. Now, the practical outworking of that, I think, is like many things in the faith, extremely hard and even messy, right? It may cause us or require us to humbly give up things that in our flesh, we say, no, but I like doing things this way. But if the thing that I like is in the way of my fellowship with someone else who's a brother or sister in Christ. What's the number one rule of Christianity in terms of Jesus' example? It's to sacrifice. If you love your brother, it says in 1 John, you're willing to lay down your life for your brother. Well, we could at the very least lay down our preferences in worship music. We could lay down our, our preferences in worship style or, or teaching style or how the chairs are set up or what color the floor is, right? Like, These are things that we can sacrifice for the sake of unity. And how many of us can tell stories 
of churches that have split from each other because there was some stupid argument about what the check-in system was like at the church for the babies. Were they going to wear wristbands or name tags? Were the pews going to be blue or green? Neither one. Those were both stupid colors for pews. Okay? So like, so what's, but we've all seen that. We've all been there. We've all been in those situations. And, and yet somehow we're all claiming to still be the same church. Paul says, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. That's the work. I think we're in this season. That's the work. If we're going to have a unified front against the works of darkness, if we are going to be a light in the world, if we are going to be the church that Jesus created, that he left, remember this, and, and this, is, this, 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 this crushes me as I think about it because it, it requires me to rethink my entire um, understanding of where the authority is in our life as Christians, okay? Jesus did not depart from this earth and go, here you go, take, take, take this, here you go, and here's your manual on how to do the next 2,000 years until I come back. He did not do that. What he did is he authorized a group of people whom he gave his word to, right, and said, now you guys together go out and call those others alongside of you, walk with them, love them, and teach them everything that I told you. But, but, the, but the imperative there is that he gave the command to this group that is now called the church. This is where we see, I had a conversation with a dear brother yesterday and he's been through a season of his life where he just hasn't been able to come to church. There've been medical issues, there've been family issues, these kinds of things. And, and he made the statement, he says, but you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And in its plainest sense, no, you don't. No, you have to believe upon Jesus to be a Christian. You got to place your faith upon him. He's your master. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But the reality is, is that if you don't, if you're not a part of the body, if you're not connected, then you're on your own and you are in a dangerous place where you can be waylaid, you can be deceived, you can be harmed, you can get lonely and depressed. We need to be a part of the church. This is the authority that Jesus left to us in this world is the unity of the church. That's important. That's important to be unified because that's what Jesus left. Now, the church then reproduces, remembers, writes down what Jesus's words were and what his teachings were through the letters written by the apostles, through the history of the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. All of those things are written down for us now. And the church then takes this, what God has given to us, his written word, and we teach from this, we express from this, we worship from this, we lead from this. This is what he's given us, but the authority is in the church using the word. Now, when we get to verse 11, oftentimes people want to focus uh, uh, and define what, what is often referred to as um, offices within the church, like official roles, these titles uh, that each of these ministries represent within the church. So read, read from verse 11 with me here. Uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we will attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is at the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul describes in these last several verses the way in which this unity is complementary, right? Complementary, however you want to say that word. That there's this, this action, this usage of these giftings that have been given by Jesus because of God's grace that, that builds up our knowledge so that we can be unified and that it can all ultimately be done out of love. This, this is the work that is to be done. Now, verse 11, it says that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why this gets focused on so much of the time is because there, within the structure of the church, there appears to be um, godly principles and instruction for how the church is to be led. And, and this is where you get into that discussion of like male headship, Right. To where 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talks about how men are called by God to lead the church. They're called to be elders, pastors, deacons, right? And, and the, there's this list of requirements that says this is the kind of person, the character of a person that is called to lead God's church and be leaders in that. Now, oftentimes that gets taken and gets applied to this as well and said, so here's the offices, here's the roles that those men in their leadership of the church have to follow, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, the problem with that is this, that Paul's writing here is to the entirety of the church, not just to the men, okay? So in his writings to Timothy, Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the instructions are specifically given to men in leadership who are called to lead the church, right? To be elders, bishops. The idea is overseers of the church. That's their role, is to make sure that the church is functioning in the way that it's supposed to. But in regard to what Jesus gave, in regard to giftings empowered by the Holy Spirit so that the church builds itself up, all of these are available to everyone. Now, some may hear me say that and go, that's heresy. How can it be that a woman could fulfill the role of being a shepherd? Because shepherd is synonymous with the word pastor. So how could a woman be a pastor? Well, a pastor is an overseer. A shepherd is, or a shepherd pastor is a caretaker, right? Are women in the church called to care for one another? Well, absolutely they are. So can a woman be a shepherd in that sense? Not in the leadership sense over the entirety of the church, but in the sense of, look, look again for what it says. These roles are, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, right? Are only men supposed to build up the body of Christ? Absolutely not. Men and women, old and young, are supposed to build up the body of Christ. You know, one of the most amazing things hanging out with teenagers is this. And those of you who've had children understand this or have been around younger people, it's a humbling thing when you start learning things from people who are younger than you. That's an odd little equation, right? For the longest time, it's like, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. You're seven. 
Okay? I tell you. But then they turn 17, and all of a sudden, in a weird little twist of fate, they teach you something about humility or grace or forgiveness or obedience that you're like, oh, crud. God's using my kid to, like, rebuke me. Can I ground him still? Like, I don't understand what's going on here, right? Listen, the point is this, and don't, don't hear me wrong. I want to make that distinction so it's clear. There is structure and there are roles that God has given that are defined by our gender, male and female, right? And regardless of what our society says, you can't change those roles. Male is male, female is female. You can't just switch those in and out, no matter what society says, no matter what culture says. And there are specific roles that are given to men, specifically leadership. Leadership and authority, oversight within the church and within the household as well, okay? Women are also given roles that are very specific to be those who encourage and help their husbands, right? To be uh, lovers of the home, meaning to have a heart for making the home an important place in the structure of the family. These are roles that are given to women. Women bear children. Men don't. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm good with that. But that's a role that comes with a blessing from God that your salvation will be found in childbirth, right? What's that a portent of in, in Genesis chapter three? The coming of the Messiah, right? That, that, that the Messiah, the one who would save the earth from their sin would actually come through the birth canal of a woman, right? So there's a blessing that comes with being a woman in that regard. There's different roles. But in the building up of the body of Christ, this desire to attain to the unity of the faith, to mature, and when it says in verse 13, to mature manhood, again, it's one of those words that when, when it's hard to translate, the concept is personhood, not just man. But like when we use the word mankind, right? We understand that we're talking about all people on earth, not just men, right? That's the same kind of word that's being used here. That when we develop into mature personhood, manhood, womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer children, the fullness of Christ doesn't include just men. It includes men, women, children, old people, everybody, right? The church is made up of all of those distinct different people. And so these roles that are given or these offices, if you want to call them that, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, understand that these are all roles, giftings even, that God will empower through the Holy Spirit in different people at different times. Why this is important to understand and why this is important to, to take in and really reconcile for ourselves is that it gives us that insight into saying it's not just the guy at the front whose job it is to build up the church, right? There are other teachers here. There are other shepherds here. There are other people in this room and within our fellowship that get words of prophecy from the Lord, things that, that are an exclamation of God's word, right? For us to grow in and understand and build unity, right? There may be people even within our fellowship who God will use in that apostolic sense of saying, man, there's, we need another Bible teaching church someplace else, right? So let's lift, raise that person up and let's send them out, right? It's not just this guy up at the front who has that responsibility. We all are called to unity in this way, to build one another up. When I, when I got to that point and, and understood that, that was a, oh wow moment for me, that, that I had read this for so long just in the context of a different scripture, 1 Timothy 3. 
thinking this is just pastors and elders. No, this is the, whole, this is the fullness of the church to where, whether it's Julie or Sandy or Matt or Lori or Shane or Neva or whomever it is, that God wants to use in this way. All of a sudden, you know, someone gets a word from the Lord and they just go preach the gospel to someone that they're in relationship with. Someone's converted. Guess what? They were an evangelist, whether they were a male or female, right? That was the gift of evangelism to share the gospel with someone and it was effective, right? So all that to say, these points and understanding these things that Paul is explaining to the church, it's for the purpose of understanding that we are not coming to just listen to a singular thought, a singular mindset, but that there is a multiplicity of gifts given by God's grace so that the church can be built up into maturity. It, and, and I'll just be honest, I'm not smart enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not well-trained enough in church leadership or Bible teaching to be the one to drag all of you with me to become mature in the faith. Everybody plays a part in that, in the fellowship of the body of Christ, which is why we need to be one. We need to be in agreement. We need to be on the same page and the same team in terms of what God has called us to.